Amen. Hey, it's great to see you here or online, and I'm excited because my sister's here. Lydia, my sister's here, and my uh, niece, Elena, and my brother-in-law, Tom, uh, Elena is getting eye surgery uh, tomorrow. So let's, uh, let's pray. We pray for the sermon, and we'll say a prayer for Elena's eyes too, okay? So God, thank you so very much that you are here, that you're with us, and I thank you that you're with Elena and you'll be with her tomorrow. And we pray for the doctors. We pray that the surgery would just go great. And uh, Lord God, we pray the sermon would go great. <laughs> we, we pray that we, I guess I'm praying that we would preach it. We preach it together. And God, would you guard us from the ridiculous notion that we need to understand everything about you. So Lord, if someone doesn't understand something in the sermon, including me, I pray you'd remind us not to freak out. Uh, but to trust, because you are, you are the living one who's here with us and in us and all around us, and uh, you're revealing your glory. So I pray, Lord, that we would see it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's what we preached on last week. Next verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look." That was actually one sentence in Greek. <laughs> uh, beginning with and governed by this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last time, Peter is writing from Rome, probably sometime around 63 AD. He's writing to churches in present day Turkey, and he mentions that they've been grieved by various trials. Historians and Bible scholars uh, debate and wonder what exactly those trials were. In 3.16, he mentions that some are being slandered. In 4.1, he's going to start talking about suffering in the flesh, as if some have been, you know, beaten. And 4.13, he talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings, and we know that Christ was slandered and beaten and crucified. July 19, 64 AD. 
An immense fire broke out in the city of uh, Rome. It burned for three days and for three nights. And every time it appeared to have been quenched, it like mysteriously started once again. The populace suspected that it was Nero who wanted to clear Rome of the ghetto and the, and the poor in order to make room for his building projects. You see, the emperor needed a scapegoat, and the new and rapidly growing sect of a Galilean Jew fit the bill. The rumor was that they were cannibals. At the supposed love feast, they ate the flesh of this man and drank his blood. The Roman historian Tacitus records that beside crucifixion, new forms of death were invented for these Christians and for the entertainment of the crowd who was afraid of them. According to church fathers, it was during these times that Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified upside down for that is what he requested. So the trials that these churches in Asia Minor are experiencing in, in the letter of 1 Peter, um, well, they weren't these, and yet they could have been rather similar. It was often the practice of the Romans to require citizens to make sacrifices to Roman deities and to the emperor. However, the Jews had won this hard-fought exemption through a few hundred years of bloodshed. Christians considered themselves to be Jews. But the Jews that rejected the Christ often disagreed and turned the Christians over to the local authorities. And so believers in Christ suffered various trials. From slander for simply being different to torture and death for the name of Christ. Christ is actually not a name, but a title, the anointed. Jesus is the name of the Christ. And Jesus means God is salvation. And confessing that God is salvation of the world, of all, will really tick off any and every tribal deity, like we talked about last time. Well, Peter just writes various trials. And that would include everything from crucifixion to the flu or being snubbed at a party. So what do you say to believers that suffer. I mean, what do you say to a friend that just had a rough day? Or maybe received, uh, they were served divorce papers from a spouse or had just been diagnosed with cancer. What would you say to a, a Christian of Jewish descent that just watched her son murdered by a Hamas militant on a rampant, raging, murderous tirade. What would you say to an 18-year-old Palestinian girl, a Christian, who grew up in what is effectively an open-air prison camp called Gaza and just lost her family to bombs dropped by the IDF in retaliation for something she had nothing to do with and utterly despised? What do you say to those that suffer? Believers and perhaps unbelievers that might become believers, what, what do you say? I've been taught that you say very little. Perhaps you help them cry. 
like the little boy that crossed the street when he heard the old man's wife had died and, and he came back and his mother said to him, what did you say? And he said, nothing. I just sat on his lap and helped him cry. I've been taught that you say very little and perhaps, perhaps you say, I'm sorry. You say, I'm sorry, and then you say something like this. No one understands these things. This surely is not God's will. We say God is in control, but not this. Or if I were God, if I were God, this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe that was a terrible mistake. We're going to learn from this, and I am just damn sure that it will never happen again. It was wrong. It should never have happened. You say, I'm sorry. And then, if anything, you issue some sort of apology. But that's not what Peter did. At least not in this letter, is it? First sentence after the greeting to these suffering new believers in modern-day Turkey, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he doesn't stop. Like you just heard, he says a lot, all in a sentence. And it's not an apology. It's a eulogy. And not because someone's dead, but because they're alive. Blessed is the English translation of the Greek word eulogetos, which is a combination of the Greek prefix eu, meaning good, and the word logos, which means word or idea or reason. Eulogos is the origin of our word eulogy, and eulogetos means eulogized. Peter, I lost my business. Nero burned my mother. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is not what I learned in grief counseling at Fuller Seminary. Now, I bet that Peter wept for them. I bet that he felt intense sorrow for them. But he didn't apologize. He eulogized. He literally good-worded God. When I was 18, I was a lifeguard at the Green Oaks Community Pool. I probably wasn't a very good lifeguard. But I had a lot of fun with the kids. I had learned that momentum is transferable. Which means that if a 7-year-old weighing 50 pounds and an 18-year-old weighing 200 pounds timed their jumps just right on the diving board, and the 18-year-old, like, retracted his legs really quick at the bottom of the depressed board, a whole lot of momentum could be immediately transferred to that 7-year-old in the form of velocity. In other words, I could seriously launch a 7-year-old, like 15, 20, maybe 25 feet in the air. And there was so much energy transferred to that little seven-year-old flailing body that they would often just utterly lose control on their trajectory and then come down with just an incredibly painful smack. Belly flops, back flops, side flops, you name it. They come down with a smack, sink in the water, come up gasping for air, and then they'd immediately spin around looking for me. And in that instant, as their wide eyes locked on mine and their tiny brains just screamed, what the hell happened? (laughs) 
I discovered that I had an incredible power. If I panicked, and I apologized, saying, Oh my God, oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, are you all right? Their little lips would start to quiver, and then they'd start to cry, and then they'd get out of the pool and go home, tell their mom, and I'd lose my job. But if in that moment I smiled, and I said, That was awesome, that was amazing, you flew like Superman, wow! their lips would start to smile. And then they'd start to laugh. And then they'd start to yell, do it again, do it again, do it again. Same event. Same sensation. But an entirely different experience depending on whether I apologized or I eulogized. Now, I was probably a terrible lifeguard. But suppose that there was a perfect lifeguard that saved every kid at the pool and taught every kid at the pool not only how to swim, but how to fly like Superman. Well, you see, the effect of the apologies and and eulogies in that process might be just the same, right? And, And how do you explain the difference? The next year when I was a freshman at CU in psych class, I learned about what some called a gestalt shift. Uh, German, uh, that's German for pattern or paradigm. At the, term, at the turn of the last century, some German psychologists were studying stroboscopes and uh, forming postulates as to why we see movement in movies, you know, and not just individual frames, like instead you see someone moving. They postulated that per- Perceptual experience depends on a gestalt or a pattern embedded deep within you. And so your brain fills in the missing details according to that gestalt. You all know this, right? So some of you see the young showgirl and some of you see the old woman depending on your gestalt. And when uh, the thing you see changes from one to the other, that's called a gestalt shift. Some of you see two faces looking at each other. Some of you see a chalice. That has to do with what some gestaltists call figure ground organization. This is a tough one. Is that good or evil? Death or life? Beginning or end? Shame or glory? Is that chaos or logos? Who's in control? The people on the ground or the figure on the cross? that tree in the middle of all those people. When the gestalt shifts, when the paradigm changes, it's often very traumatic and it's experienced as a crisis or crisis in Greek, also translated judgment. Is this our judgment? Or God's judgment? Or God's judgment of our judgment? 
or our judgment of God's judgment of our judgment or God's judgment of our judgment of God's judgment of Is this the greatest of all tragedies? Or the gospel? I shared this with you in our series on Romans, but I have to share it again because this is my favorite depiction of a gestalt shift. Something I never told you. Something happened when I was a boy. There was an incident with a, with a man. Who was that? I'd never seen him before. Stranger. How old were you? I don't remember. Young. What was so small. I remember. I remember. I was naked. Take your time. I was so naked. I hated being naked. And I remember I was crying. And then he hit me. Adrian, I'm so sorry. There was blood. There was blood everywhere. I was screaming. I wanted him to stop. My mother, my mother was smiling. Wait, wait, your, your mother was there? Why didn't she stop him? She was supposed to protect me. He kept hitting me, swinging me around upside down. You were upside down? Was he wearing a mask? I never wanted to be naked again. Adrian, that man was a doctor. You're remembering your own birth. Doctor. Doctor. Anybody else, I wouldn't have believed it. But do you? Doctor? Mm-hmm. Well, that would explain a lot, actually. The lights and my father in the doorway holding a balloon. Mm-hmm. You feel better? Yeah. <laughs> I do. <laughs> wow. Adrian, I'm so sorry. And then the comforter didn't apologize. He eulogized. Adrian, you were being born. I prayed with some people through some awfully horrific traumas in which Jesus would appear in visions weeping, and then over and over again he'd say, I'm sorry. took me a long time to understand that he was saying, I feel your sorrow. He wept, said, I'm sorry, but he never apologized. Or said something like, if I were God, I sure would have done things differently. You see, it's almost as if Peter has a different view of reality. And when we see as Peter sees we repent. It means having a gestalt shift of epic proportions. Metanoia, new mind. So what does Peter see? We just read it, but we probably didn't believe it, or maybe just a very little bit of it. 
It's one sentence translated into six for the ease of our tiny English-speaking brains. Verse three, blessed be, you like, you like, you logitos, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. How great? Paul told us in Romans. He consigned all the disobedience, they may have mercy on all. What's mercy? Mercy is relentless light. Hesed in Hebrew. God is love and he just won't stop being God. According to his great mercy, he has anaganao. Anna and ganao to beget or to birth. Now, the ESV is a great translation. You can understand why the translator would have translated it the way that they did. But a literal translation is not he has caused us to be born, but he has born us or birthed us or probably more likely begotten us. He has begotten us or birthed us again or anew or from above. In verse 23, he's going to write this. 123, Peter's going to write this. You have been begotten again, or anew uh, uh, from above, of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So hopefully you get the picture of you, you know, um, we're begotten into this womb of a world and born out of this womb of a world by God and his word like a seed. And, and then what you think of as dying, you see, may actually be birthing or being born. And all your suffering may actually be the pain of travail. Now, now you kind of knew that. So right now, fasten your seatbelts. When were you begotten of God by his word? In the beginning... He made all things with his word. A word is a vibration of meaning or logos writing on breath. And God reached down, took some dust, and breathed his breath, his spirit, into that dust, making you in the beginning. At the end of this age, you will be finished in the image of God. And born into the age to come, eternity, which is God's rest, the eternal seventh day. And yet, on the cross, which is a tree in a garden, Jesus delivers up his spirit, his breath, which descends on you as you're born from above, here and now. So when are you begotten from above? Well, in the beginning and in the end, and in Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, hanging on the tree in the garden at the edge of time and eternity in the sanctuary of your soul, which is always here and now. And now put on your crash helmet. Who is being born? Now this is wild, and I just do not understand why more people don't talk about this, but it's just amazing to me. Five times, and I've looked at this a lot. Five times in Scripture, Jesus is called the monogenes, the only begotten. In John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be, in other words, this isn't up to you, Nick. Nobody decides to be born. You must be ganao anothen, begotten from above or begotten again. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of breath is breath, spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. Don't freak out, Nick. You must be born again. And then he says, God so loved the world that he gave his monogenes, his only begotten. 
So do you see the problem? How could we be begotten of God if Jesus is the only begotten of God? The only way that's possible, I think, is, number one, if Jesus is begotten in us. As if Paul meant it when he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As if Christ really is being formed within us, as Paul said. As if he really, as if we really were the, or he really were the son of man and we are his mother. Whoever does the will of my, remember what Jesus said? The only way this is possible, he's the only begotten, we're also begotten, is if Jesus is begotten in us, or number two, if we're begotten in Jesus, as if we actually are hidden in Christ Jesus and members of his body. See, the only way that Jesus could be the only begotten and I could also be begotten is if I were in some sort of communion with Jesus. And it wasn't my decision, my judgment or choice, for nobody simply decides to be born, Nick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has begotten us anew to, or more literally even, into a living hope. What's a living hope? Isn't hope an idea in your head? You're alive and the the hope is in your head? Peter writes as if the hope is alive and You're like an idea in his head. Into a living hope through or by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He writes as if hope rising in you is Jesus rising in you. From a tomb that is somehow the old you, as if Paul actually meant it when he wrote to the Colossians saying, this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Peter writes, you have been begotten into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If something is truly imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that means that that thing does not experience chronological time. Physicists will tell you, this is really weird. Watch YouTube videos and they'll tell you, this is really weird. But the only way we can even detect chronological time in which we all seem to be imprisoned, is that things fade, become defiled, and perish. In other words, everything dies. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. It means that everything came from a highly ordered state and is becoming disordered. In other words, everything came from logos and is descending into chaos, and we don't know how to reverse the flow of time. So, if something is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, it's eternal. And if it appears in time, it already exists in some sort of inconceivable eternal now. And if I inherit eternal life in the eternal kingdom of my eternal Father, wouldn't it mean that I am imperishable, undefiled, and unfading? Whether or not I believe it, at any given moment in chronological time. But when I do believe it, I have entered God's Sabbath rest, the seventh day. And I am living in the new man, the true self, my true self. That is, I am hidden in Christ. And when I don't believe it, I'm living in the flesh the old man, the false self, and I need to repent. I need to 
wake up. And when I repent, when I wake up, I will see that even that, the hope, the faith, and even the repentance, that is the gestalt shift, is a gift. And so I will what? I will like, eulageo, nonstop. Worship. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven, and heaven is at hand, and heaven is within you all, said Jesus, Kept in heaven for you who by God's power, by God's power are being guarded through, or dia, maybe more literally, by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last kairos, in the last time. In verse 20, Peter claims that the last times, chronos, are already here. Weird. But now, okay, now brace yourself. We think that it's our job to guard the faith. Right? Guard the faith. That's why we conduct crusades to conquer the Holy Land. To guard the faith. That's why we give money to politicians that promise to protect us from pagans overseas and pagans at home. That's why we argue, apologize for God, and desperately try to explain everything about God. Which I might be doing right now. Trying. In 1 Peter 3, 5, Peter writes this. Always be prepared to make a defense. Apologia. From apa, apa, about, and logos, about the logos. It's where we get our word apologetics. By which we usually mean arguments to prove the existence of God and defend the faith. Always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. But if that hope is a living hope, oh, he's perfectly capable of defending himself. Karl Barth wrote, Note well, in the whole Bible of the Old and New Testament, not the slightest attempt is ever made to prove God. How can we prove God when he's the one that is proving us? How can we ever explain God when he is the explanation of us. Do you want to demonstrate God's existence? Asked Soren Kierkegaard. It is accomplished not by proofs, but by worship. Any other way is a thinker's pious bungling. I love that phrase. Thinker's pious bungling. So you see, I think the sort of apologia or defense that God desires is a eulogia. It's worship in spirit and in truth. It's a testimony. It's speaking a word that is speaking you. It's speaking Jesus. God is salvation. The good word of God returning back to God as praise. So as I was saying, brace yourself, okay? Seatbelt, crash helmet, assume the crash position. We think our job is to guard the faith. But the faith is guarding us. By God's power, by faith, wrote wrote Peter. Faith is not an idea in your head. If anything, you are an idea in faith's head. Or maybe I should say not just an idea, not just one of your ideas, like someone else's idea. St. Augustine wrote, If there is faith in us, Christ is in us. For what else says the apostle? Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Therefore, faith in Christ is Christ himself in heart. 
As we learned in, in Romans, we're saved by grace through faith, but this faith is not of ourselves, as he says in Ephesians. In other words, it's not our work. It, like he says all through Romans, it's the faith of Jesus given to us at the tree in the garden. I mean, gosh, it might have even been seed in that fruit that we took. It's not our work. We are his work. So you are being guarded by faith for an imperishable salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, which is now. I mean, faith must be like an imperishable seed, the substance of things hoped for. So if, if you're new, I'm sorry for this will be hard to understand. And if you're old, I'm sorry because you've seen this like hundreds of times. For Peter, time, chronological time, must have looked something like this. We live on this line of chronological time, but we are surrounded by eternity, which is the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kingdom of God. Eternity, when it is finished and everything is good, eternity invaded time at the cross. And yet Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world. And his tree of life is there at the end. He's the beginning and the end. So he is begotten in us and born of us even as us through the cross. Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead, in other words, is the doorway to and from eternity. And right now humanity, Adam... That is, man is pregnant with him. <laughs> Just as Mary was pregnant with him. The son of man. Your old man is pregnant with the eternal man. And he is the author and finisher of our faith. Faith which guards us and finishes us in the image of God. In this you rejoice, writes Peter. Now it's unclear to me whether this refers to what has come before, what he's about to say, or or both, because though has been added by the translator, which would make sense to our brains. So, so literally, what he wrote is something like this. In this you rejoice now for a little while, if or since it be necessary that you have been grieved, you've been made to sorrow by various trials, parasmos, test, temptation, or trial, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. You know, if I gave you some gold, which I'm probably not going to do. But if I did, you wouldn't have made the gold, right? But it would be your gold because I gave it to you. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is, this is incredible. But whenever you experience a trial or a temptation, something or someone is being tested. Who is that? And why? Is there something that God does not know about us that he comes to know by testing us? Like which ones of us are worthy and which ones of us are not worthy, for instance? Or is there something that we don't know about God that we come to know when we put him to the test? 
like he is faithful when every one of us is unfaithful. Jesus said to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jesus said to us, pray our Father, our Father, lead us not into temptation. Well, does he ever lead us into temptation? Yeah. He put us in a garden with a talking snake and this crazy tree when we did not know good from evil or life from death. And so we were not yet finished in the image of God. You see, all our temptations are to put God to the test. For we do not know that God is good. And his word is love. If we really knew that, it would change absolutely every breath that we take. So every time we sin, and all sin is a lack of faith or trust, we put God to the test. We put love to the test, for we obviously don't know what love is or who love is. God is is love. And every time we put God to the test, God passes the test, which then creates faith in us through his body broken and blood shed, the imperishable seed. And yet that testing is incredibly painful for all, isn't it? Just as giving birth to my children was not only painful for Susan, it was painful to every one of the kids. It was even painful to me. You have been made to sorrow by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, God's faithfulness in you, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As if Jesus has been hidden somewhere. Well, your faith is more precious than gold. Gold is perishable. They didn't even know this in Peter's day, but it's true. It will be um, destroyed by eternal fire. But your faith is imperishable. Because it is the fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And you have been begotten from above by imperishable seed. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. So God tests God at the cross. So you would see that he's faithful. And God tests God in you that you would see he's faithful in you. And God passes the test such that you would begin to eulogize. That you would begin to hope and begin to trust and begin to worship. That you and all creation would speak praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ in you. Christ born of you. Christ revealed in you. And your birth pains. In trials, the lie that you are salvation is burned away. And the truth who is God is salvation is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, writes Peter. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with, with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, said Jesus. The logos, the word, the idea, 
the mere idea of you. <sighs> the longing here for you. You'll never know how slow time goes till I'm near to you. I see your face in every flower, your eyes and stars above. The very thought of you, the mere idea of you, my love. After 62 years of walking this earth, it seems clear to me that God is not too concerned with whether or not you conclude that he exists. I mean, seriously, he could conclusive, he could answer that question with just one little miracle, and I've seen a lot of them. I just don't think he's too concerned with whether or not you conclude that he exists, and yet he does seem to be incredibly concerned that you want him, the real him, to exist. And it seems to me that he's willing to do absolutely anything to give you that desire, including subject all of creation to futility, allow you to crucify him in weakness, and rise from the dead as faith, hope, and love in you, in your life, in your heart, like a seed in you that grows into an entire new creation, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, his face in every flower, his eyes in the stars above. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's your psyches. That's like your everything. In chronological time, your soul is not saved. It's being saved. For in eternity, it's always been saved. It's been filled with the imperishable and eternal glory of God. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Do you get that? Peter thinks that the Spirit of Jesus was like in Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets. So do you really think that God is torturing them endlessly now because they never joined the Baptist church? Or said the sinner's prayer quite right, you know, before their body died? You see, God has no need for endlessly torturing anyone. And yet, everyone has need for temporal discipline from God for a time. For until you die to your own ego, you cannot know the glory of God hidden in the depths of the sanctuary of your own soul and constantly radiating in all creation, all around you, all the time. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, plural. In the Revelation, when the new Jerusalem, who is the bride of Christ, who is his mother, who is his body, and who is you, when she is revealed, she, quote, has the glory of God. Incredible. Because he says very clearly in the Old Testament, I give my glory to no other. And that means that she's like, no other. 
Verse 11, the sufferings, plural of Christ, and the subsequent glories, plural. 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. In prayer, in visions, Jesus will weep with those who weep. And Jesus will say, I'm sorry. And then Jesus will also show them, often show them his scars on their body. And their scars on his body. Church history is filled with such stories of what people call the stigmata. And some of you have shared similar stories with me. It's fascinating to hear them. What does it mean? It means that when you were rejected, he was rejected. When you were raped, he was raped. And when you forgave, well, you bled his glory. For you are, in fact, his body. And just think of it. He had a body long before you were born. So it's not even so much that he's sharing in your sufferings. You're sharing in his. And all your trials, temptations, and sufferings, they're to be his. Even the ones that you inflict on yourself. Because there is no deeper wound than the one that we now call sin. And yet it's in that wound that the glory of grace is revealed. So, so when you confess your sins, believe his grace, and so eulogize him, you preach gospel. Not just here, but in the heavenly places. All your sufferings are his sufferings. And you will know it once you've surrendered them to him. Rejoice insofar to the extent that you share Christ's sufferings. And so get this. The shape of your suffering is the shape of his glory in you. And there is an eternal and immeasurable weight of glory waiting for each one of us. Immeasurable weight of... Your ego cannot bear the weight of this glory. Our afflictions rid us of the illusion that we are salvation so we can bear the weight of God is salvation. Manifest in us, Jesus in us. Like a baby in a womb or a savior that walks out of a tomb. In Acts chapter 5, just after Pentecost, so many miracles were being done. So many came to to believe. The crowds were so great that they literally carried the sick. You can read this in Acts chapter 5. They literally carried the sick out into the street just on the chance that Peter's shadow might touch them as as he walked by. And all were healed. The authorities will not arrest Peter or or the apostles because they're terrified of the multitude. But they ask Peter and the apostles to meet with them, you know, privately in the high council, the the Sanhedrin. Peter ends up preaching to the council saying this, you hanged him on a tree and God exalted him on high to give, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And they all want to kill Peter and the apostles. But at the advice of Gamaliel, they settle on just beating them instead. Verse 13. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. <laughs> Christ is, is not his name, but his title. Jesus is his name, and it means God is salvation. And Jesus was Peter's friend, whom he adored, not because he could walk on water, but because he remained faithful when Peter was utterly unfaithful. Peter was rejoicing, not because the church was growing like wildfire, not because everyone was just healed by touching his shadow. He was rejoicing for he had shared in the sufferings of the Christ. Jesus, the Christ. And you get that. You get that. I know you do. That's why you read stories. That's why you go to movies. You want to see love when. And love, in all of his various forms, love is most beautifully revealed in suffering. The light shines in the darkness. And so every story has suffering that turns into glory at the revelation of the plot. And Jesus is the plot to every story that's any story. But you're not just reading this story. You are the story. Give birth to the plot and even become the plot. You are a theater of eternal glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And you know, it may be revealed to us that we're not serving ourselves, but someone else, or maybe even them, because that's the way the things work in the party that's called the kingdom of God. All the best gifts are given at somebody else's hand. Not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel, the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels lust, desire, long to look. I don't think angels are in the least bit impressed with someone walking on water, healing broken buns, bones, or buns, <laughs> or by money that miraculously appears in, in your wallet. But they are utterly amazed when you pray to be healed and aren't healed and yet still believe, have faith. When your world falls apart, but but you still hope. When all your friends reject you, but you still love them. They're utterly unimpressed by signs and wonders, but they are utterly fascinated by faith, hope, and love rising in you. They worship God because of Christ revealed in you. And so on the night that he was betrayed by all of us, he took, he took the bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the, this is the covenant. The, in, in Hebrews, is the eternal covenant. This is the covenant um, in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So next time you get bounced and you belly flop bad, you come up for air and you look around for an explanation. If you look to the principalities and powers of this world, if you look to the tribal deities, I mean the institutions of this world, be they religious or political, if you listen to your own flesh, they will all tell you this means you failed. And you may be forever rejected and despised. 
But if you look to this table and the man on the tree and the one who controls absolutely every bounce, even if he doesn't bounce you, he still is in charge of the bounce, he'll tell you. This suffering means that I am making you in my own image. By the power of my word, who always accomplishes that for which he's been sent. And so your suffering will turn into our glory. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not an apology. That's a eulogy. Amen. But paradigm shifts are hard and they take work and that's why we gather each week to eulogize, eulogize the name of Jesus, um, God revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This world constantly tells you that if you see or experience something like this, see it? tells you that if you see something like this, it means that God hates you. And you're about to die and be tortured, possibly forever and ever without end. And Jesus is telling us that when you see or experience something like this, it means that God loves you. And you are about to be exalted beyond your wildest imagination. No kidding, on Thursday... Um, a friend, part of the sanctuary in Australia, she called me and she said, Peter, it's, it's so cute how they talk down there. Peter, I was in the garden. I won't do the rest like that. But she said, Peter I, was in, Peter, I was in the garden and I had a vision and I don't know how to put it into words. I don't know how to tell people. I tried to write it out and they're going to think I'm crazy or like a heretic or something, but but I saw the name, Jesus Christ Kurios. She said, I looked and I saw it. It was just glorious. She said, I saw all creation just like praising him, uh, worshiping him, unstopped, just in, incredible, beyond anything I could ever say, this light, this glory, Jesus Christ, Lord, the, the name. And then, and then, as they were praising him, they like, got sucked up into him <laughs> as if they were a part of him and all that glory. And I said, yep. Sounds like the Bible to me. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>